Father, as you've uh, opened up the scriptures to us this morning, we pray that our minds would be receptive to what you have to teach us and that it might change the way we think about and feel about the world and act in the world, that we might trust in you and live as pleases you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a sermon about living in the shadow of human power and dominion. At the centre of Daniel 2, there's a disturbing dream. A dream of an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. And this colossus towers over everyone. Its radiance is blinding, its expression is fearful. Such a statue is a marvel. The power, the technological knowledge needed to make it is vast. Such a statue is kind of terrible to be kicked or trampled by such giant legs of iron would be the end of you. But this enormous statue, this awesome statue, is struck and broken. It's struck on its point of weakness, the divided feet, partly iron, partly clay. It's struck by a rock cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. Here is a different kind of power, not metal, but mineral, not human, but divine. And despite all the glory and strength of the statue, all its parts, we read, were broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. And the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, the king who dreamt this dream was deeply troubled about what it meant. He was so emotionally overwrought by it that when his experts couldn't satisfy him about the dream, he ordered them all to be executed. So what are we to make of it? Today, I want to think firstly about the meaning of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And then secondly, I want to think about the statue and the rock in our lives today. Firstly... Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it signals, it portends, it foretells the ultimate ascendancy of God's kingdom. Now, dreams fascinate human beings, and in the ancient Near East, they might be interpreted in order to provide insight into events and to guide decisions. Rulers who need to make high-stakes decisions, as they do, are especially motivated to get knowledge of events and to get insight into their implications, to know what is the right decision to make. These days, rulers surround themselves with experts in health or education or finance, people who can manipulate big data and spot trends, pollsters, geopolitical experts, economists, etc. But in the ancient Near East, the experts were those with kind of esoteric skills in reading signs, signs that came in dreams, in the flights of birds, in the stars, in the entrails of sacrificed animals. All of this was an attempt to gain insight, to gain knowledge, so that decisions could be made with confidence. And Nebuchadnezzar's dream 
is beyond the skill of his panel of experts because he either can't or won't tell them what he dreamt and they are helpless without knowing the dream in order that they might put their techniques to work on interpretation. But he insists that they tell him both the dream and the meaning. What Nebuchadnezzar learns is, as Daniel says, no wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he is asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Now Nebuchadnezzar is not wrong to think that this dream is significant, to believe that it contains a revelation hidden in its mystery. Daniel affirms in verse 29, As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. These days, our theories of the function of dreams include things like, well, they're there to kind of process the day's experiences. They discard junk, they bed down learning in memory. Or perhaps on a completely different theory, they simulate threatening situations to give us practice in facing them. Or on a third theory, what dreams do is they kind of keep your visual cortex busy while your eyes are closed, so it stops the neurons in your visual cortex being kind of colonised by other brain functions and rewired to do different things. Our knowledge of why exactly we dream and what functions they serve is wide open. There are many competing and different theories. And whether or not some or any of this is true, we might still accept that from time to time, God might use dreams to reach some of us. Perhaps rarely, for most of us, probably never. But for some people, sometimes it seems that God does use dreams, and often in combination with someone else that we might connect with in parallel with this experience of a dream, just as Nebuchadnezzar was brought into contact with Daniel. Daniel said, as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. God gives something and then he gives someone to explain the something. So what are we to make of it? Well, I suggest along the lines of Daniel that the statue represents a series of human rulers to whom God gives ascendancy in history, beginning with, of course, Nebuchadnezzar. Your majesty, you are the king of kings, the God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you rule over them, says Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar. You are that head of gold. So on one level, God is the one who has made the statue. Certainly he has put Nebuchadnezzar atop of it as the head of gold. Presumably he also gives the kingdoms of silver and bronze and iron their authority, their power, their moment in the sun as well. The series then moves from golden head to feet of clay and iron mixed. The middle two kingdoms barely rate a mention, the silver and the bronze, but the fourth is notable for being firstly strong and destructive as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. 
It's strong and destructive, but also it is divided and vulnerable. So verse 43, just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people of this fourth kingdom will be a mixture and will not remain united any more that iron mixes with clay. The reign of human beings is not golden all the way down. It is at the base a smasher, a brutal crusher of others. And it is at the base something that will be divided. It will be brittle and prone to coming apart. Time will show this up. Various attempts, of course, are made to identify the kingdoms of silver and bronze, of iron and clay. Gold is Nebuchadnezzar. Should we take the sequence of kings that comes in the book of Daniel? Afterwards, so that the silver kingdom is Belshazzar's kingdom, the bronze kingdom is Darius's kingdom, and the iron kingdom is Cyrus's kingdom. Or should we not think of individual kings, but rather kind of empires succeeding each other, so that gold, Nebuchadnezzar, is the whole Babylonian empire, followed by the, 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 media, the Medes, are followed by the bronze, the Persians, and followed by the iron, the Greeks. Or perhaps another way to divide it up is because the Medes and the Persians were essentially a united empire in some ways. Not, there wasn't a lot of distinction between them. The, the Medo-Persian empire is the, the silver empire and the, the Greek empire is the bronze empire. And then the vision goes beyond the book to presumably name Rome or to imply that Rome is going to be the iron empire. Now, of course, you can debate those things and there's really no consensus, but perhaps it's not essential to the point and the text itself doesn't identify these kingdoms or empires. Perhaps the point is that the... Well, the point is, really, that the series of human empires will be, in the end, replaced by a divine kingdom. In the time of those kings, verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold to pieces. The promise of the dream is that God will set up a new and different kind of power and authority in the world one that will supersede human power and dominion, one that will fill the earth with its alternative mode of ruling. As Isaiah put it in a slightly different way, but hear the echoes in Isaiah 2.2, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. So, Ben, you might say, where is this ascendancy then of God's kingdom? There have been far more than three world-spanning empires since Nebuchadnezzar walked the earth. We still live, indeed, in a world of human power and dominion. Well, I'd say, of course, there is Jesus, who came proclaiming the time has come. The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe the good news. Who taught that the kingdom of God would grow from something small, but it would grow surely. 
He said that the kingdom of God is like a, a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants. This is the man who told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And Paul, Jesus' disciples, taught that the risen Christ will in the end hand over the kingdom to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. Nebuchadnezzar's dream may be a massive simplification of world history, if you like, of events, but the dream he had of the ultimate ascendancy of God's kingdom is being fulfilled through Jesus Christ. We live then both in the shadow of the statue of human power and dominion and in the dawning of a new kind of kingdom, the growing of a new kind of kingdom, not fashioned by human hands. So let's turn now and think about the statue and the rock in our lives today. Now, state power is not always safe or friendly. The rage of Nebuchadnezzar was fixing to put a whole staff of failed experts to death, including Daniel and company, who apparently were not even present when the order was given. The paranoia and fear of world leaders still erupts in violence upon populations, upon individuals, and they succumb. It is not difficult to think of places where heavy-handed and unscrupulous governments or ruthless dictators sow fear into their societies and trample on the lives of all who displease them. And each week we pray for such places, and we will again today. On a smaller scale, though, our own workplaces or institutions can become what everyone calls these days, toxic, ruled by irrational, capricious, punitive people. Not inevitably, of course, but human beings do have a habit of wielding power in a self-interested, self-protective way. This is life in the shadow of the giant statue, life in the flow of history, life in the history of human power, and authority. Now, we might just note how Daniel managed to negotiate the situation. Faced with a crisis of a death sentence, it's not in our reading, unfortunately, but let me just point out to you, Daniel, when Ariok came to drag him and his friends away for execution, he spoke to Ariok with wisdom and tact. Here are qualities worth pursuing if you live in the shadow of the statue, if you live in a place where power can turn against you. Wisdom and tact, prudence and discretion, shrewdness and diplomacy, a controlled and careful engagement, a thoughtful and calculated words. Daniel not only turned to wisdom and tact to deal with the situation, he turned to prayer. For he didn't solve his problem with his wisdom and tact. That wasn't enough. His wits, his prowess, were not going to get him and his friends and the Babylonian wise men out of this scrape. He may have gained time, but it was the Lord's gift that enabled Daniel to deliver himself and his friends and all the wise men from the gallows. As he said in verse 23, I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. 
You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. And so along with perhaps wisdom and tact, which might buy you something, another habit worth pursuing and developing is prayer. These situations where we have to deal with power and perhaps irrational and capricious and punitive power, let's plead with the God of heaven. Let's ask our Heavenly Father to make a way through, a way out, when the situation gets, frankly, out of our control. Perhaps God will give you a gift a thought, an opportunity, a connection, a piece of information that will help both you and everyone else navigate a tricky situation. Perhaps, like Daniel, God will teach others something about himself through you. And this will especially be the case if, like Daniel, you are able to give God credit for the gifts he gives you to share with others. This might be a delicate matter in a secular modern workplace, but perhaps God will show you how, how to be known as someone whose the gifts that you bring are brought because God has given them to you and you acknowledge that, you believe that, you bring them in that spirit. I don't know how things are for you on this score, but... Perhaps it would be good to discuss with others if you think, yes, this is a a real situation in life. Well, so much for living in the shadow of the statue. What about the rock that is to smash the statue? Let me say briefly, there is a sense, of course, in which the rock is already here and growing to fill the earth. The risen Christ reigns at God's right hand. The good news of Jesus is being proclaimed throughout the world. The church of Christ is being built. We are learning how to live as citizens of heaven, citizens of this new and very different kind of kingdom. That means we are learning a different kind of power and authority than the head of golden splendor and the legs of iron. A different kind of power and authority than those kingdoms practice. As Jesus told his disciples in our gospel reading, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. One thing we might see is that Daniel himself was salt and light in the courts of Nebuchadnezzar. And so you and I may be salt and light in all the corners of the world that we inhabit. So as Jesus said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Because like Daniel, you know that what you have comes from him and you bring it to share in that understanding and spirit. Let's pray. Father, as we have to live in a world which is ruled by human authority and power, we pray that you give us wisdom to do so, where that power is tricky to navigate. Help us, Lord, to approach things with shrewdness and tact, and also prayer. And Lord, we do pray that when we face 
tough situations dealing with authorities in the world that you would grant us answers to our prayers that we might find a way through that both helpful to us and to those around us and so that we would prove to be indeed the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.